It is the Built by Bama Online podcast. Travis Fryer, Senior Analyst for BamaOnline.com with you once again. And today we have a very special treat for you, especially if you're a basketball fan, because we're going to go nuts and bolts into how a college basketball schedule comes to be. And helping us do that today, Mr. Colton Houston spent the last nine years at the University of Alabama, including the last seven as the director of basketball operations. If you understand anything about that job description, well, scheduling is a part of it. And so with that, we welcome Colton to the podcast. Colton, how you doing? I'm doing great, Travis. Uh, man, always a pleasure to talk to you, and I'm looking forward to uh, this conversation today. Yeah, and let's let's talk about where you're at right now. And I know it's been a bit of a transition. I mean, this time of year for you has got to seem a little bit weird. This has been camp season for you in the past. This has been a time where I guess scheduling some of that stuff, the final touches are being put on a lot of that around college basketball. How are you transitioning into this outstanding new business that you and your partner, Matt Dover, have come up with, HD intelligence uh which is very much into the analytics of the sport of basketball whether it's scheduling whether it's player performance team performance uh, i guess as much as anything transitioning out of sort of the routine of everyday life within a program yeah you know i think it's been good that i really haven't had time to stop and take a break or reflect um you know, I was with the program for the last nine years, as you mentioned, right up to the very last game this past season. And, um, you know, I had a strong idea that I'd be transitioning into something new. This HD intelligence isn't something we came up with overnight. It's something we've been thinking about for a while. But, um, you know, when we when we launched, <clears throat> excuse me, when we launched right after the season, it was prime time to start talking to schools who maybe wanted some help on their schedule. So I didn't have any time to go on vacation or take a break or really mentally um, check out at all. I just pivoted to use a, I guess a basketball word there. I just pivoted straight into what we were doing with HDI and, um, went to the final four this year, instead of going up as a coach, trying to network, I went up as a entrepreneur trying to spread the word about our business. So it's been busy. It's been fun. Um, kind of, I've never done my own thing like this before. And it's, it's been exciting. I, probably the lifestyle aspect has been the biggest change for me. Not, uh, sort of being on the college basketball schedule, like you mentioned, camps going on right now. It's the first time in 10 years that I haven't been working camp or running a camp, so it's kind of an odd feeling. But but I'm staying busy with with all my uh, HD intelligence work for sure. By the way, Colton, almost assuredly the first and only Harvard grad we'll ever have here on the Built by Bama online podcast. Although I did see here in the last 24 hours, maybe you noticed this too, another win for the Ivy League, Colton. Uh, Taylor Jenkins, 34 years old, Penn grad, Mm -hmm. named the head coach of the Memphis Grizzlies and specifically a big analytics guy. Is this is this something we need to go ahead and expect to see more and more of? I, I know we talked about this a little bit before the podcast. There's been kind of a gap, I guess, between the front office and that head coaching position. But is that gap shrinking uh, as we move forward in this era? Yeah, I think it probably is a little bit. You know, I, I've never met uh, Coach Jenkins. Um, honestly, I'd be lying to you if I said I knew anything about him before he was named the Grizzlies head coach. But it did pique my interest to have an Ivy league grad, you know, in coaching and ascend to that position. You know, it's funny. I, I just, I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but I just went to my 15 year 
college reunion two weekends ago, which was an awesome experience and got to see a lot of friends I don't see very often. But I will promise you this. I'm the only member of my graduating class <laughs> from Harvard that is working in college basketball or wanted to coach or work anything along those lines. And I don't know what that says about me. Probably nothing too good. But um, yeah, I would love to meet him at some point just to talk about, you know, that path from Ivy from an Ivy League educated person like like himself into coaching. You don't see that happen very often. But, you know, to answer your question, I, I think that as the front offices of, of these franchises have become more analytically minded and you have some folks from a finance background or a tech background or, you know, MBAs taking over the reins of these franchises, to me, it's sort of the, the next logical step is for them to bring in coaches who share the same vision for the franchise. And that doesn't mean it has to be, you know, uh, um, a guy with an Ivy League degree or an MBA. A lot of former players embraced analytics as well. And I think a lot of times you can find someone who played the game who understands it from a player's perspective, but also understands what the front office is trying to do analytically. That's probably the perfect blend. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I'm not surprised. And, and I think you will probably see a few more guys ascend into those head coaching roles there because at the end of the day, these the GMs and the owners want kind of a seamless vertically integrated, if you will, chain of command. I, I just anecdotally talking to folks I know in the NBA, that there are some franchises where there is a disconnect of some degree between, you know, the coaching staff that's more old school, traditional X's and O's and then maybe the front office, which emphasizes analytics. So I think some, some teams are taking some steps to, uh, to try to make it a little more streamlined there. Colton, tell us a little bit about what you know in terms of the day-to-day workforce, say, in the NBA that's committed to analytics. Essentially, its own department, right, within the franchise, compared to what there is right now at the college level, which I would guess is a big reason why we're learning about HD intelligence coming into play here, right? Yeah, so um, I certainly know more about the college game in terms of the details than, than how it works at the NBA level. One of the kind of personal projects I've taken on this summer is to talk to the folks at the NBA level that I know or who can connect me with some analytics folks there. And I've had a few of those conversations just to get a feel for how they do what they do. I can tell you that all 30 franchises have fully staffed, fully funded analytics departments and have for some time now. You know, there was probably a point in time, maybe a decade ago when 20 teams were in with analytics and 10 weren't, you know, I'm pulling out numbers here hypothetically, but um, you know, it's been a number of years now that a hundred percent of those teams have been into it. And we're not talking like one person we're talking about, you know, the teams I've talked to have had six or eight or 12. I mean, it's a pretty sizable operation there. Um, it's really integrated with their video departments, which makes a lot of sense. You know, you want to look at the video and you want to look at the stats. Those are the two things you're going to be able to go to, to give you a picture of what's actually happening on the court. Um, so the NBA is all in and every franchise approaches it differently, but every franchise is, is all in the college game is, is a different story. So it's certainly making its way into college basketball and some programs I would say are all in, but I would say that the vast majority of, of college coaches and college basketball programs are either, they either have no uh, use for analytics, don't have any, um, analytics program or it's very very kind of elementary and they're, they're just sort of getting started um, but I think you're starting to see a kind of a slow wave 
move. You know, change doesn't happen as, as quickly at the college level for different reasons, but um, you're starting to see a wave come in. I, I've noticed two uh, high major programs out there recently have hired uh, a person on the staff whose title is director of analytics. And that's something that, you know, you didn't see even two years ago. And uh, I certainly think that's a trend where that number is going to rise. You know, at some point you'll have 10 and then at some point 20 and maybe at some point 40 or 50. But um, I guess if I had to sum it up, Travis, the college game is well behind the NBA, significantly behind the NBA when, when it comes to incorporating analytics into the operation. And obviously that's a reason our company exists. You know, we want to step in the gap and partner with those college coaches and those college programs that, that want to reap the rewards of having, um, you know, a, a robust analytics approach. So hopefully we can find some, some folks who, who want to do that and want to partner with us. You know, Colton, I guess there is still at every level that old school versus no school, new school sort of rivalry there when it comes to numbers and analytics and uh, not to make this into Biggie versus Tupac or West Coast versus East Coast or anything like that. But just most recently, Jalen Rose, I'm sure you saw this, the former Michigan mm-hmm. star. 13-year player in the National Basketball Association in an interview with the New Yorker magazine says, quote, there are many people that feel like it has a cultural overtone, speaking of analytics in the sport. Uh, To it, that basically suggests that even though I may not have played and you did, I am smarter than you and I know some things that you don't know and the numbers support me, not you. What was your response when you saw or heard those comments? Yeah, I read it. Um, I, I think you have to li- – I mean, I don't disagree with him in that, uh, you, to me, the way I interpret those words is a lot of times – and you don't have to be sort of an analytics person to be this way. I think we all can fall into this trap of approaching a situation with a level of arrogance. Um, you know, I hope I never come across that way. I probably do. That's one reason it's good to be married. Your, your wife kind of keeps you in check when you <laughs> get a little too big for your britches. But um, – to me, he was speaking to a level of arrogance that he perceives on the part of some folks who come in. And look, he did play the game uh, for a long time at a high level. He stayed involved with the game. There is wisdom and, and value from his experience that he can bring to bear on understanding how to be successful running a team. Um, I certainly think there's a lot of value in using analytics to understand what's happening and inform your decisions when it comes to running a team as well. But anytime folks, kind of move into what I would call sort of an arrogant posture and, and they don't want to list things. They think they have all the answers. I mean, I think that's, that's where you get yourself in trouble. And I'll, and I'll tell you this, this kind of ties into the last thing you asked me about the NBA. One of the most enlightening comments that I heard when I was talking to a director of analytics for an NBA team, uh, this is in the past like three weeks. He said, you know, a lot of people think our job, my job is to go tell the coaches like you need to do a, B and C. He's like, it's actually the opposite. The coaches come to me with questions, and I reiterate this to them. What are some questions that you you want to know the answer to, some decisions you have to make, and you don't feel like you have all the the tools to make that uh, decision? It's like, that's what I can help you with. So kind of an obvious example he threw out there was, you know, as a coach, you always have to make the decision on the offensive end when the shot goes up. Are we sending two guys to the offensive glass and three back on defense? Are we sending three to the glass and two back on defense. In the NBA, sometimes they'll just send a one to the glass and four back on defense. 
what is the risk reward? What's the right thing to do? Does it change depending on who you're playing? Does it change depending on who's in the game? It's like, that's where analytics can, can help. So in other words, he wasn't approaching it from a standpoint of arrogance of I got all the answers and the coaches need to be do, doing what I'm telling them. It's no, I'm here as a resource for the coaches. And if they have questions I can help them answer, then that's how I add value to the program. Um, that to me is 90% of, of kind of how analytics should work with the coaching staff. There, there are some non-negotiables that as an analytics guy, you're probably never going to convince me of like, you're not going to convince me that I should be taking more 19 footers than three point shots. Like the math just doesn't work out. I, I don't hate the mid range shot. I don't think you should take zero, but I do think just from a pure value of shots perspective, um, you're going to have a hard time winning a lot of games if you live at 19 feet. Um, so any, anyway, but, but I think the vast majority of it is partnering with coaches, trying to get answers, trying to use data to, to get some more insights into your team. But yeah, not to turn this into a, a newsy type situation with the three point line in the college game going to the international level. Do you still think that will be the case in terms of a little bit deeper shot from three kind of, you know, I know that wasn't specifically what we were getting into, but, but you mentioned it and it piqued my interest. Um, uh-huh. Is there still going to be more value from, I guess it's beyond 22 feet now, something like that than there was uh, through last season in terms of the three point shot versus stepping inside the arc in the mid range game. That's a great question. I mean, none of us really know, right? It's far to me. I'm excited to see how attempts change, how three point field goal percentage changes. Um, my guess, and again, this is speculation. I could turn out to be uh, completely wrong in this, but my, my guess is that um, you'll see three point attempt rate decline very slightly. And you'll probably see three point field goal percentage decline slightly. I don't think it will change sort of the uh, ideal shot distribution because a a couple reasons. Number one, the line, in my opinion, was too short to begin with. I mean, you have some college teams out there that take over half their shots from threes right now. You know, whether you're talking about Villanova or I know in some games Auburn fit in that mold, and I'm sure there's some others I'm forgetting. That's a lot. I mean, that's more threes than layups and jump shots and hook shots and, you know, uh, post up. That's more threes than all two shots combined. That's to me, that's a little extreme. But um, so you already had a ton of threes being taken. Um, and the second thing is a lot of those threes are coming from FIBA range already. Like you notice when you watch the college game, guys will routinely pull up from four or five feet behind the line. So um, I think you'll see a small change in it. I think at the end of the day, it's a good change for the game because it, it, it helps the college players as they adapt to the next level. Either they're already shooting from that range or if they're moving on to NBA, it's less of a um, – less of a change for them so uh, but I'm super interested to see how it works out and that's something that Matt my partner you mentioned him earlier we actually talked earlier today and we're like okay you know one of the things we want to do for our clients during the season is help them think about shot selection and shot distribution and what are good shots and what are bad shots and you know offensively you want to maximize you know the value of the shots you're taking and defensively you want to force your opponent into taking low value shots well we kind of know what that looks like based on last year but now that the three-point line is changing how is that going to affect things this year so uh, we're gonna have to pay really close attention to it earlier in the season and see if there are any trends that we need to you know pick up on the nit i guess the last couple of years experimented with the international line 
and the results from that, I believe in the most recent NIT, were that there was actually an uptick in three-point shot <laughs> attempts, but as you pointed out, it was slightly decreased in terms of makes and percentages from that standpoint. So absolutely, it'll be a fascinating aspect to take into consideration for the 2019-2020 college basketball season. But why we have Colton here today is to talk specifically about the construction of a schedule in men's college basketball. And let's start right at the foundation level, Colton. What is that? What's the foundation of every schedule? When you start with a schedule, what's the starting point? Um, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, really, the starting point is your conference schedule. It's the part you don't right. control. Um, but I hesitated in saying that because often that's the piece of information you get last, right? Like, um, I believe the SEC, since we're an SEC country and I was at Alabama, we, we'll use them as an example. I believe the SEC a week or two ago released publicly the conference schedule. Um, they did. And, but we're talking about June. Right. And a lot of teams, most teams, I would venture to say, have finished their non-conference schedule already. Now, obviously, you know, a lot of the teams you're going to play, you, you know, Alabama knows it's three permanent rivals. They're always going to play twice. Um, they have an idea of, you know, some teams they played at home this year. They're going to play on the road next year. There's probably only two to four games that are variables that they're not sure of yet. But um, you really have to start with that. And I'll tell you, Travis, that, that is probably one of the mistakes because we've talked to. I mean, if we've talked to five teams, we've talked to uh, 35 teams since April about just scheduling. They're not all clients of ours, but just a lot of people are interested in thinking through how they schedule. Because honestly, most teams construct their schedules um, without putting a ton of thought into it. They sort of do things the way they've always been done. And I don't want to paint with a broad brush because there's a lot of teams that don't do that. But um, typically what happens is you have one person on staff who gets assigned the schedule. <laughs> by the head coach. Uh, sometimes the AD or the assistant AD takes care of the schedule. Most of the time it's a coaching staff member. And that person, again, most of the time, not all the time, doesn't really enjoy it, isn't really excited. They'd rather be recruiting or coaching the guys or whatever. And so they just sort of get it done as quickly as they can and follow a model that is just out there the way it's always been done. My point in saying that is where, where every team should start is they should start by thinking about their conference schedule. What are they getting from their conference? And, you know, we have a pretty detailed formula that we think um, you can follow to put together an optimal schedule, but it involves hitting certain benchmarks. How many NCAA opponents are you playing? How many Quadrant 1 and Quadrant 2 games are you getting? On the flip side, how many Quadrant 4 games are you getting? Um, but you want to start with your conference schedule to think about, okay, well, if I'm in the SEC and I'm playing 18 conference games, and these are the teams I think I'm playing home and away, what type of value am I getting from those games? Um, once you have an understanding of that, then you move into the non-conference portion. And typically the first um, non-conference games to get scheduled are those early season tournaments, right? Uh, we all know about Maui or Atlantis or go to Orlando to play in the Advocare. Last year, Alabama was at Charleston. We go up to New York. Everyone knows they're usually around Thanksgiving. Um, the, the technical name for those are multi-team events or MTEs. Um, one thing that your listeners may not know is very different than football. In order to play the maximum number of games in a given season, which is 31, you know, in the regular season, you have to play in those events, right? The, the, the way the rules are written is 
you can either play 29 games or you can play 31 games. Um, four of those games are in an exempt event. So every team that, that can is going to play in those exempt events to get the two extra games. So what that means is, you know, you don't have the option of, of opting out of those. So you really have to commit to those early and make sure you get in a good one. So teams will typically commit to those events two, three, even four years out. Um, once you get that event locked in, uh, then you're going to work on the rest of your games. But, and this is again, a difference from football, you're typically not scheduling the remainder of those non-conference games until um, a lot of times after your season is over. And again, each team's a little different. Some teams like to get their schedules done earlier, but I would say that over 50% of teams out there are scheduling, uh, you know, their last five, six, seven games after the season ends. So they're using the months of April, May, and June to finish it out. You talked about some of the early season events. Uh, Alabama, as you said, in Charleston last season. Alabama's going to the Atlantis event down in the Bahamas in November, going to Maui in 2020. How does that invite, how does that come to be? Is it is it done through uh, the event organizer slash ESPN? Um, how, how do you land one of those spots in one of those events, Colton? That is a, that's a great question. It's definitely more of an art than a science. It's kind of like, uh, well, I'll say this. It's kind of like recruiting in a weird way in that you have uh, a hierarchy, a pecking order, if you will, of events. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, every event thinks theirs is the best. But there's sort of an understanding that you have a couple top tier events and your next tier and you work on down. And you also kind of have a pecking order of teams. Now, the way the rules are written for these events is uh, there's only one team per conference in those events. So if you're in a league with a bunch of really, really good basketball teams, you're really competing with the teams in your own conference to get into the good events or what you perceive to be the good events. So there's definitely a little dance that goes on with events sort of, they want the best teams because they're trying to get TV deals and sell tickets. But, um, you know, the teams want the event. Sometimes a team wants to be an event. The event isn't interesting, interested. And sometimes it's vice versa. And like I said, it's kind of like recruiting in that you sort of have a pecking order of recruits, a hierarchy of recruits and a hierarchy of teams. And you're sort of trying to do the dance and, and figure out, you know, what's the best I can do in this given situation. But, um, you know, that that's why at Alabama, we always wanted to try to f identify good events, high level events and go ahead and talk to them. And, hey, you might be filled up for next year and the next year and the next year. What about four years out? You know, if I know Alabama's going to the uh, Bahamas for that battle for Atlantis event this coming season. Um, that's something that coach Johnson started working on when he first got the job back in 2015. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, you know, th yeah, they're filled up coach till 2019. I don't care. Let's go ahead and commit for 2019. Um, so, um, yeah, that, 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 that's how those work. And kind of the other thing you have to keep in mind as a scheduler is if I commit to this event in 2019 and I don't know the other schools in it, or I know like, but I don't know how good those schools are going to be. Now, if it's, if you're going to an event with North Carolina and Gonzaga and Michigan and Iowa State and Seton Hall, okay, well, they're probably going to be pretty good. But some other schools, you might not be so sure. So you might get yourself in a situation where you think you're going to this great event and then a couple coaching changes happen and all of a sudden it's not what you thought it was going to be. Is there a financial benefit to the programs that participate in Maui and let's say Atlantis 
uh, the higher end events that you just spoke of, or is it, is the reward all about just being a part of it, you know, and the exposure that comes with it and those things, sort of the prestige? Um, that's a great question. Uh, there are probably, I don't know any details here. I'm, you know, you hear rumors here and there. There are probably some schools that do get some compensation for going, you know, with certain brands that are high profile that the events really, really want to have them at their, uh, at their event. And so they, uh, you know, have the leverage there and, and the schools have the leverage and maybe they get paid. Um, I don't think that's very common at all. I think most, most of the time the benefit to the school is first of all, it's three, two to three good neutral site games, which it really takes a lot of pressure off the guy doing the scheduling or the, or the person doing the scheduling, because it's hard to go out there and find teams that want to play you with a, in a home and home series. You know, I, I know football, there's a lot of talk right now about, at Alabama, for example, moving away from these neutral site games to more home and homes. The, and, and I don't have a, I think it's great what they're doing. I, obviously that's not my area of expertise, but I will tell you it's, it's a lot easier to go do a neutral site deal because you're only talking about one game instead of two and you don't have to deal with playing a road game. Coaches are always a little worried about going on the road. It's harder to win. Um, so there's a huge benefit to going to say Charleston and playing three games in four days and getting value out of those three games. If you didn't have those, then, those are games you're going to have to schedule on your own, you know, one off, you know, each game, it's its own deal. And that's going to be, be tough. So I think there's a recruiting advantage. If you're saying I'm playing in Maui, we're on ESPN or we're on CBS or whatever. Um, you know, there, there's certainly a prestige that comes with that that benefits your fans and recruiting and all that. So uh, I think it's more those types of benefits than, than financially. Cause a lot of times the schools end up, actually having to pay quite a bit of money in terms of travel and lodging and all that for, for those types of, for those types of tournaments. We're talking with Colton Houston, co-founder HD intelligence analytics, as it relates to the sport of college basketball, specifically today on the built by Bama online podcast, we're getting into the nuts and bolts that go into constructing a college basketball schedule and Colton, something that has become bigger and bigger in the sport. It seems in the last five, six, seven, eight years are these showcases featuring the likes of the sec versus the big 12. And now we're going to see even the sec and the AAC, not the ACC, but the AAC, a very respectable basketball league in its own right, uh, come together for some made for TV type games. Is, is it similar to the events that we just talked about with Maui and Atlantis in terms of how it works and, and these challenges, uh, or is there a, a different sort of selection process altogether? It's a little different because uh, the early season tournaments, the exempt events, um, as I said before, the way the rules are structured, you have to play in one of those to, to play 31 games, and everyone wants to play 31 games. So teams have to do that. Uh, I mean, some teams don't, but I mean, 90% of teams are doing that, and the power really lies in the hands of the person who controls that event, whether that's a television network or a promoter uh, or whoever that happens to be. Um, with these conference challenges, these are not exempt events. These are just games on the schedule. They take up one of your non-conference uh, game opportunities. Uh, and the conferences are really calling the shots there. So think about it this way. Instead of an event promoter or a TV network controlling the event, and their priorities are going to be, obviously, to you know make money in some form or fashion, now the conference is controlling the event, or two conferences are controlling one event, and their priorities are different. They're, you know, they may get a little bump from their TV contract, 
by having that event, for the most part, they're trying to help their teams build resumes because their objective is to have as many teams in the tournament as they can and to help teams get seeds, you know, to set them up to advance in the tournament. So I'm a huge fan of the conference challenges. Um, in some of my conversations I've had the last few weeks, I've had a chance to talk to folks at the conference level across the country, and there are actually more conference challenges on the way. I'm not breaking any news here. Uh, I think some of it, some stuff has leaked out and some hasn't, but, you know, you mentioned the Big 12 and the SEC have a challenge. Now the American Conference is getting in on that one as well. You know, the, the ACC Big Ten's had one for a long time. The, the Big East and the Big Ten have one. They call it the Gabbitt Games. Uh, but you're going to start to see some maybe mid-major conferences get involved, uh, which is actually, in my opinion, just from an analytics standpoint, really, really smart. Um, because if you are a league, let's say you're not a top four league in the country, you're one of those next five to, to ten leagues and you, you want to get as many teams in as possible, helping your teams get good non-conference games is a huge part of that. So anytime two conferences can come together and it's mutually beneficial, I think it makes a lot of sense to do that. Now, there's an aspect of scheduling that I know a, a lot of the, the higher majors, they probably don't like the, the term that's used to describe them, but they're called buy games, right? I mean, that's that's essentially mm-hmm. what we're talking about. Filler, you're trying to fill out a, a non-conference schedule. Um, you know, they're called buy games for a reason. You're essentially paying an opponent to come in and what your hope is that it results in a W for your team. Um, what, what goes into that? What do you need to be careful of? What, what sort of, the, is there a, is there a ceiling, uh, in terms of what you're willing to pay for an opponent? If you're a, a power five team, now, what goes into to those games? Because they're, they're essentially overlooked by just about everybody. And in some instances, as we've seen, even the favored teams have, have overlooked some of those opponents and <laughs> you see the upsets pretty commonly. What about those games, Colton? You know, it's funny you bring those up, Travis. You know, I said earlier that a lot of schools approach scheduling with the mentality, well, we've always done it this way. We're just going to keep doing it this way. And I think that applies to buy games maybe more than any other aspect of building the schedule. Um, you know, and I'll, I'll admit I was guilty of that. When I first took over scheduling in Alabama in terms of being like the main point of contact for scheduling, <clears throat> the first thing I looked at was how many buy games did we played the year before versus high major home and homes or neutral site games, how many the year before. And then I said, okay, well, if we usually play six buy games, let's play six buy games. But was there a lot of thought put into that of what's best for the program? How does that help our strength of schedule? How does that hurt our strength of schedule? Um, No. (laughs) And I did probably a lot of folks approach it the same way I do. They just, this has been, this is done a certain way. Everyone basically does it the same. We're just going to keep doing it this way. Um, You know, I think if you think about your buy games a little more thoughtfully, maybe you consider things like, do I really need to play six or does it benefit us more as a program to schedule more high major games, maybe go on the road a little more often, maybe play another neutral site. Maybe we play four or five by games. Uh, I'll tell you one thing, your, your CFO, your budget office is going to be happy because you're not spending as much money because uh, those by games aren't cheap. Um, but a lot of coaches like the buy games because they've perceived them to be obviously um, your, your chances of winning are much higher there than, than with some of your other games. Cause a, you're playing at home and B you're typically playing a, and inferior opponent, but that's sort of, so that's another, that leads me into another aspect of rethinking by games that we did at Alabama. This is no secret. If you looked at our schedule the past couple years, 
people kind of thought we were crazy because we're paying teams to come play us that were really good NCAA caliber level teams. So I'm thinking about a Murray State, a Texas Arlington, um, a Georgia State, uh, uh, Liberty, although that game was in Huntsville. They did get money to come play us there. And for all intents and purposes, that was a home game for us. And I could go on and on. I think if we played 10 bye games in the last couple of years, I would say maybe seven or eight of the teams we played were teams that we thought were probably going to win their conference and had a shot to go to the NCAA tournament. The old school mentality uh, that most coaches probably still subscribe to would say, that's crazy. Why would I pay a team, you know, all this money to come here and we might even, we might lose. So I'm paying them to come in and possibly beat me. But the mentality we adopted and really coach Johnson deserves a lot of credit because he was willing to go along with it was, okay, we know we're going to play these four or five bye games anyway. How can we get the most value out of them? And so for us, it became about maximizing our resume or optimizing that resume for selection Sunday. And so we're willing to go out and pay Murray state to come to Tuscaloosa for a game. And we beat them by two or three points. I mean, they were really good. They got a number two pick in the NBA draft, probably at point guard. And he was a great player. Um, but at the end of the day, we won the game. It was a quadrant two win on our team sheet, which we don't get quadrant two wins for some sec games. So for us to, bringing a team like that, playing at home, get that win, tremendous boost to our resume. Um, and you don't win them all, you know, your chances of losing. Yeah. You, that's a risk that you take, but I think we always felt like the the benefit outweighed the cost when it came to scheduling those games. So, um, you know, if, if you are um, really interested in that, you can go and, and kind of look at some teams. There are some teams around the country. It's not just Alabama that have really figured out, there's a way to get some value out of these buy games and they're bringing in teams that are really, really good. And at the end of the end of the day, what they're saying is, well, my chances of winning instead of being 95%, maybe they're 85%, but I'm willing to take that 10% decrease in my winning percentage uh, for the added value I'm going to get from that game on my schedule. That's basically what it boils down to. Well, whatever you guys paid Murray state, you more than got your money's worth with John Moran. <laughs> Well, at Coleman the Coliseum, their money, the fans got their money's worth for <laughs> sure. Right? He was pretty unstoppable. The only thing that I feel good about there is we were by we were clearly not the only team he did that to. Uh, he pretty much did that to everyone he played against. But did yeah, it we, Auburn. We, yeah, we we had a hard time stopping him that night for sure. Now you talk about these five or six buy games. Does a budget? Is there sort of a pool of funds that is allotted from the financial? people in an athletic department that that's presented to to you guys or when you did this that okay this is how much you have allotted for these games is it is it broken down that way colton mm-hmm. yeah i mean it is at alabama and i would i've talked to enough uh, folks at other schools now in my current line of work to know that that's pretty much how it seems to be done everywhere uh and, and that's a thing that varies uh a school's buy game budget um like you're shopping. Is, yeah, it kind of is. And you basically know the going rate of these games. I mean, th- th- there's – I do think when mid-major teams are buying low-major teams, you know, the rates are a little different. Uh, but a lot of times the low-major teams are willing to take less because they feel like their chances of winning that game are better. Um, it, it really is sort of a fun puzzle, and it's it's there are a lot of moving parts that go into how this gets done. But an SEC school is going to have – 
a significantly higher budget for their buy games than say a, I don't know, Atlantic 10 school or maybe a Missouri Valley school. Um, you know, I've talked to teams in those conferences that they do buy games, but they maybe only have the budget to buy two or three, or they may cut a deal with their AD and say, well, I know we only have the money to buy three, but what if we get bought? What if we're a team in the, cause there are some teams in those leagues that will get bought on occasion. We get bought and we go to a big 10 school and get paid, you know, 95 grand. And then we turn around and we buy an extra game on our back end. So we're basically bringing in some money to offset what we want to do. And uh, a lot of schools do that. A lot of schools will sometimes get bought and then turn around and buy uh, other games. So, um, but yeah, there, there's a pretty wide discrepancy across the board. And that's one of the challenges, you know, it, again, in my current line of work with HDI, we, we talk to teams at all levels. You know, there are plenty of teams in the Mountain West or the West Coast or the A-10 or the Missouri Valley that they can get in as an at-large team. But they may say to us, and we, we can only buy three games. That's all we have the money for. We're not like the SEC where you can buy six. So how do we construct a schedule, um, you know, with, with within those limitations that still is going to get us where we need to go? And that's just sort of a, the parameters in which they have to work, and we, we, we try to help them out. Yeah, I was going to say, this is where HDI should be the perfect fit for so many of these programs. You're talking about over 340 Division I basketball programs right now, I think, Colton? You, yeah, you probably know an exact number. I think it's 353 right now. Yep. Yeah. I mean, there's no way even a lot of these higher and, and mid-majors can be aware of what's out there for them. And, and this is the service you guys can provide them, right? Not only in terms of, you know, what their budget is, but at maximizing that budget via RPI or, you know, whatever it is now in terms of, you know, giving yourself that chance uh, via the at-large at large route um, to, to qualify your schedule in a way that you have that opportunity in addition to making your budget work. Yeah, no, no question about it. And, you know, hopefully, um, I hopefully I'm right on this. I think that's one area where my experience comes in handy because, you know, my business partner, Matt Dover, who's an Alabama graduate, by the way, and he's got a master's from Harvard, which is a total coincidence. We didn't meet until a couple of years ago, but um, he's the analytics guy. And, and the way we describe it, I, I'm a basketball guy who gets analytics. I like the math. I get it. He's an analytics guy who gets basketball, but really he's much more uh, experienced and trained on the analytics side. And I'm much more experienced and trained on the basketball side. So um, he's able to really crunch the numbers in a high level way and come up with everything from an algorithm that, that assigns values to these games and projections for all these teams. But then when we go to talk to teams, because I used to be in that chair with the, you know, wearing that schedulers hat, if you will, I'm able to say, look, I know these are a lot of numbers. I know we're throwing a lot at you, but I've been where you are. I get it. It's not as easy as saying this team is going to be a great fit. So let's schedule them. They, they may not want to play to you. They may um, not have a date that works. You know, they, they may say no. So you're, you're going to have to sort of mix and match and find the teams that will fit. And thankfully, I've done that, so I get it. I get that it's not as easy as just, you know, sending an email and boom, the game is scheduled. There's usually a lot of back and forth and negotiating, and you might be trying to schedule a team, and but they're also talking to four other teams about the same date, and at the end of the day, they may go with someone else. You have to have a backup plan. You probably have to have a contingency for that. And um, 
so yeah, ho- hopefully we're able to kind of take a data-driven approach that really is helping our clients on a pure numbers level, but at the same time, understand the position they're in to where sometimes they're, it's a little bit more of an art than a science when it comes to actually getting the games scheduled, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Something else we saw really brought into play by Avery and, and yourself and the staff were the sort of neutral site games, although, as you said earlier, pretty much home games, uh, whether they were in Huntsville, or maybe Birmingham. Um, it looks like that's going to carry over into the next regime. Uh, the, the sort of response uh, that, that you got to, to those games uh, once they were put into play and uh, we saw them occur for a couple of years, Colton. Well, that's a pretty easy one to answer, Travis. If we won the game, the response is really good. <laughs> <laughs> if we didn't, the response wasn't as good. Uh, and, and, and I'm obviously joking when I say that, but it is true. At the end of the day, a schedule is only good as the team that's playing it, right? And so, right. Um, you know, we, we talked about Murray State earlier. That that was a great game in hindsight because Alabama won. If Alabama had right. lost the game, people wouldn't be saying that. But, no, to answer your question in the spirit that it was asked, um, it was po- really positive. You know, when we scheduled those games previously, it was always when um, school was out and the students were gone. And so we didn't want to take a home game away from our students who always did an awesome job supporting us. Uh, we knew the crowd wasn't probably going to be as good. So we felt like it made sense to go to Birmingham or Huntsville. We, we explored some other op- some options with other cities. Um and we thought that the Alabama fan base in those cities would be excited to be able to go watch the Crimson Tide play in their city. And that turned out to be true. We, we drew really, really well, uh, you know, the, in all the Birmingham and Huntsville games. And, um, you know, one, one thing you're dealing with there, and again, this kind of goes into the aspect of scheduling that a pure numbers guy probably wouldn't understand, but someone who's been on a staff gets – Coaches are really concerned with with two specific games, Travis. This is some real inside baseball, if you will. This is some real inside baseball stuff here. Coaches are really, really concerned with two games on their schedules, uh, in my experience. The first game of the year, they never want to – I mean, I say they never want to. Coaches are typically hesitant to open up, especially if they're a new coach or if they feel like they're going to have a young team with a really, really tough game off the bat. They want to get that first win under their belt. Um, That's not always – logical because it's the other team's first game too (laughs) you know so they're they're at the same disadvantage you think you're at but coaches that first game that they're really concerned about and the other game is the last game before christmas break and i have seen and experienced uh myself a lot of times your guys maybe aren't all there maybe there's you know one mind is on being home for the first time in many months and going, having three days off and being with my family and celebrating Christmas. Um, and so we didn't always play our best at Alabama that very last game before break, which sometimes was a Huntsville game or a Birmingham game. And um, it definitely caused us to rethink, okay, is this the right date for this game? Does it make sense to switch this around? But um, again, that's kind of where someone with some practical experience in the basketball world kind of understands, okay, well, if we tell coach he needs to play team X because it's going to be a great game for him, he's going to want to play that game December 3rd, not November 6th or December 21st, if that makes sense. T- typically, coaches don't want to uh, start their non-conference or end their non-conference with, with a really, really difficult game. 
So if you have five or six buy games, Colton, that's where you might mm-hmm. use two of them. There you go. If you if you can, Bert. if you can. Yep. Right. So uh, how much you talked about this earlier, Colton, um, maybe more the the old way of scheduling. You had athletic department officials, whether it was an AD many, many years ago that handled a lot of the scheduling throughout the department for the respective sports. Um once you get the the SEC schedule part of it that isn't in your hands, how much of the control, uh, more so from the non-conference, is totally in the hands of, say, a Power 5 head coach? Uh, and how much does a Power 5 head coach really want it to be in his hands, I guess? I think that varies from school to school. Um, typically, I would say the head coach is going to have the majority of the say, certainly among his own staff, he has the final say. Some schools, the AD is really involved. You might have an assistant AD who really serves as the director of ops, but has been elevated to this assistant AD role overseeing basketball. Um, It really does vary. You know, we've, as I said before, we've talked to dozens of schools about scheduling since the season ended. And off the top of my head, I can think of schools where the AD does the scheduling, the associate AD, the head coach handles it all himself, maybe the assistant coach, the director of operations, the video coordinator at some schools, the GA is the point person, which, you know, I think, I think that's a little crazy, but um, (laughs) it it really varies. And and I'll say this, I was thinking about this earlier. I I was at a conference in Dallas last week with um, not a lot, you know, 15 to 20 coaches and 15 to 20 administrators, some, some assistant coaches, some head coaches. And I was fortunate enough to weasel my way into the event. I actually got to speak to the group, but the person who spoke before me was a division one head coach and um, he, he does a really good job. He's been at a school a few years. They've been really successful. And he talked about taking the job and being a head coach for the first time and learning how to delegate certain responsibilities, um, but also hold on to certain things that he felt were really important. And he made the comment, he said, outside of the way your team plays on the court, which is always our number one priority, the, the two greatest factors in your success are, recruiting and scheduling and he's like so for me I wanted to put a lot of my time and energies into recruiting because and then probably more than most coaches I put a lot of time and energy into scheduling because I knew it was going to be really important to the success of my team and he and his point was not many coaches handle scheduling themselves but I do because I think it's important well I got to follow him and I made the comment I said I agree with that statement and I, I would certainly put recruiting as number one it's the most important thing you know for the it's the lifeblood of any program but I think scheduling is number two. And then I asked the coaches in the room, I said, now think about this. How much time, how much money, how many, how, how many resources do you devote to recruiting in your program? And I mean, no one answered because we all knew the answer was a tremendous amount, probably a number that we couldn't even come up with in terms of time and money that goes into recruiting. Um, now compare that to the amount of time and energy and money and, and just and, and manpower that you spend on putting together an optimal schedule. And I would say for 95% of schools out there, um, the gap between those two is it's like the Grand Canyon. I mean, very, That's very surprising to me. Mm-hmm. That surprises me, Colton. That really does. I, I would think they would be neck and neck. I don't think they are in my experience. I think. Um, wow. A lot of like I, I feel like I'm repeating myself now because I said it a couple times earlier. But a lot of schools approach scheduling with it's something that has to be done. Nobody really wants to do it, and we're just going to keep doing it the way we always have. But um, I mean, a GA, a GA is a point person. 
for a Division One men's college basketball schedule? I mean, that's like leaving Tom Cruise home alone in risky business, in my opinion. I mean, that, <laughs> I, that, there's no way. There's no way I would leave my that, – that's a lot of my fate, isn't it, as a head coach? Isn't the schedule a big part of my fate uh, as a head coach? It is, yes. I agree with you. But I think there's two reasons coaches do that. Number one is they – well, probably three reasons. Number one is, uh, and I'm a broken record here, but that's how they've always done. They've been in their business 30 yeah. years and every yeah. step they've ever been on, it's kind of been like that. The, the, the second reason is, you know, they, they don't really know, even if they wanted to schedule better, they don't know what that looks like. They don't have the tools to go out. And that's there what you're and, trying to break through. This exactly. is what you're trying to break through, right? Exactly. We, we, to our sweet spot is to find the teams that whether it's the coach or the AD or whoever, probably a group of people there who are like, we know we need to do a better job with our schedule, but we just don't really know how to do it. No one sort of has shown us the way or given us the tools. And that's where we want to come in and say, look, we've got some tools that can really help you. And and thankfully we have a track record of a couple of years at Alabama. I think after this season, we'll have a track record with some more teams and win some coaches over to say, look, if you'll let us help you, we can help you with this. Um, now, it's probably going to require changing the way you think about scheduling and thinking outside the box and maybe being a, taking on a little more risk than you're used to in your non-conference schedule. But at the end of the day, you know, would you rather be – I don't want to name any teams here and, and call anybody out, but would you rather be that ACC or SEC or Big Ten team that wins 22 games and wins the majority of their conference games and then gets left out on Selection Sunday because – they scheduled a bunch of cupcakes in the non-conference. Or would you rather be a team like, you know, Alabama was a couple years ago, to use one example, who really challenged themselves and sales and they lost a couple non-conference games, but they they racked up enough in terms of their value and quality wins that they got in the tournament. And, and they might not even been a great team on paper, or if you look at some of the other metrics, but they scheduled themselves into the tournament. And, you know, every coach is going to tell you, on selection Sunday, oh, we'd rather be in than out. Um, you know, every coach understands the importance of scheduling on selection Sunday because they see that the committee really emphasizes that, but that doesn't always carry over into their their actions, you know, in the following months when they're actually doing next year's schedule. So we think that's a challenge for us to try to uh, partner with some teams and educate some coaches to hopefully take a little bit of a smarter approach with the way they do that. Well, based on everything we've covered here today, it's pretty clear that there is very much a need for a service like HD Intelligence. Colton Houston and his partner there, Matt Dover, going to become bigger and bigger players, I think, in the world of men's college basketball. We've taken up enough of your time today, Colton. Really fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for taking us behind the curtain, so to speak, when it comes to the creation, the construction of a college basketball uh, schedule. Uh, If you haven't already, give Colton a follow on Twitter, at Colton underscore Houston, H-O-U-S-T-O. In. Hey, Colton, look forward to getting together again real soon, and best of luck with HD Intelligence. Thank you so much, Travis. Man, I really enjoyed it, and, uh, and thanks for everything you do for Alabama athletics and for, you know, sports. You're, you're, you're really fun to, uh, to read and to listen to, man, so thanks a lot. 
Well, we appreciate your time, Colton. No doubt about that. That's going to do it for this edition of the Built by Bama Online podcast. Stay tuned to BamaOnline.com. And right here, the Built by Bama Online podcast will be back with you very soon. So long, everybody.